Hello everybody. Good evening and good day. Welcome to episode 55 of the Ask Abhijit show. Another weekend, another series of shows. So, I hope you're all doing well. I hope you're doing great. Let us see who all is there with us. I can see Ankit Mishra, Varad Joshi, Amandeep, Sagar, Bhanu, Prakash, Jay Dikshit, Shiv Bhakt, Aaron, Aman, Science Channel, Pranil Banerjee, Abhiyanshu. Amar Singh, Samarth, is left, is right, SSS, Super Rex, Priyesh, Sena, Parag, Satoru Gojo, Harsh Jain, Bluebird, Yusinor, Pratham, Dheeraj Jadav, Rutuja Kulkarni, Ankur, Kaustub, Harshit, Dungar Singh Chauhan, Chandraban Morya, Anish Rao, S2 Vlogs, Smriti, Himanshu, Swati Dhiman, Megastar, Devi, Gurav, Prashant Jadav, Yadav, Saurabh Mishra, Sagnik Banerjee, Dibya Jyoti, Pratik, Parth, Vinay, Pankaj, Satoru Gojo, Swastik and so many more people. Trishna, Samantha, Lovdeep Singh, Akash Rathor, Krishnali, Marathe, Akhan Bharat, etc. Hello everybody. Great to see you all. Great to see you all. So, what shall we talk about? What shall we discuss? As always, you ask the questions, I answer your questions. Let's see what questions are already here. Let us take a look. Let us take a look at the questions. Okay. <laughs> Gayatri says, there's already one dislike even before the video started. <laughs> I think I think it's the case is that they don't dislike me. They dislike all of us. That's why before it started, they have disliked the video. It's okay. Go ahead, dislike it. All right. What else? Mm. Let us see some interesting questions. I, As always, I'm going to take questions that I haven't taken up before. So, 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 what shall we, what shall we pick up? What shall we pick up? Uh... Okay, let's start with this question. Vinay Mundra asks, Thought or, thoughts on Indian jury not allowing the film Uddam Singh for Oscars, saying it's anti-British hate. Yeah, this, this tells us about the mental colonization of that still permeates India, especially the establishment. Uh, 
I don't know who are the members of this jury. They typically are people who are associated with Bollywood, eminent people, etc. And our eminent people are all Anglophiles. They all love the West. They are all indebted to the West and the Nehruvian and so on establishment for whatever they have achieved and whatever their status and position in society is. And therefore, they are very much pro, pro West, pro all that. And they... And therefore, they feel that India needs to be needs to stay the same, differential to the West, differential to the British Raj, thankful to the British for everything they have apparently done for us, civilizing us, uplift, uplifting us from our backwardness, and so on and so forth. And apparently, if we portray history as it really happened, then it is, it is anti-British hate. So I think it is regrettable, it is it is deplorable that a film has been rejected based on politics rather than on the quality of the movie. See, movies, films, cinema is supposed to depict society as it exists and history as it happened. There are, I mean, cinema traditionally has taken up very difficult issues at times controversial issues and that is the job of cinema to explore these issues and uh, portray them in a in a manner that can be processed by society i mean uh, i i can think of the example of uh, quentin tarantino's movie inglorious bastards in which which is a historical revisionist story in which uh, in which uh, hitler and the nazis are all killed by a band of jews I think in France, somewhere in France. So it's it's an alternative history movie, and there's a lot of violence and all that. So so should we construe that to be anti-German hate? Is that does that movie depict anti-German hate? Clearly, it does not. The the Germans, especially not not the Germans as such, but the Nazis were horrible people. And, uh, and what's wrong in saying that they were horrible? Similarly, the British, what they did in India was horrible. It was, it was inhuman. It was barbaric. It was deplorable. More than 100 million Indians died during the British occupation of India. Winston Churchill was a brute of a person, barbarian, Hindu-phobe. What he did in India was nothing short of genocide, crimes against humanity, the artificial famine that he engineered in Bengal. The, according to the British records, about 2 to 3 to 4 million Indians died, which is absolute nonsense. We have to multiply that by at least a figure of 2. I think the actual figure would be closer to 10 million Indians who died during that artificially engineered famine. So it is clear that the British perpetrated horrific atrocities in India. And to claim that an Indian movie uh, is, is, is representative of anti-British hate is ridiculous. So I think it is deplorable what this so-called jury has done. And uh, we need to reform these institutions of ours, which are still deeply, deeply colonial. They still carry the white man's burden. Their, uh, their members act as if they are honorable white men, honorable British. So this needs to change. India needs to rediscover its, its sense of self-respect and... Uh, yeah, changes need to happen. So this is very unfortunate what's happened. And it's good that you bring this up. Okay, Karthik Srinivas says, 
can blockchain eliminate corruption completely what are all the changes we can witness from the implementation of blockchain that's an interesting question i don't think blockchain can eliminate corruption completely so blockchain is a new technology you have the ledger in which we have a permanent record of whatever happens and so on i'm not going to explain what that is in detail right now because that's a totally different topic it'll take time to explain that in in a in a proper manner the thing is that many people claim that blockchain is going to uh, ensure complete transparency of transactions and eliminate corruption and so on and so forth i i disagree let's say you have complete transparency of of uh, transactions and a complete proper record of what happened and yet if a country is corrupt either the country can ban blockchain or even if blockchain is allowed uh if the institutions don't work then what's the what's the point if if there is some sort of fraud for instance let's say a terrorist uses blockchain to transfer funds to hidden operatives within the country it's going to happen anyway right so terrorism can can actually proliferate using something like blockchain because it it bypasses all government controls secondly even uh, certain corrupt individuals or organizations may actually indulge in corrupt practices uh transfer of money transfer of bribes via blockchain and if the let's say the country has good laws to to take care of this to to eliminate corruption and so on but if the laws aren't implemented then those laws are useless if you have a pendency of 5 million cases in front of the judiciary then by the time they come to dealing with your case 30 40 years would have elapsed and justice delayed is justice denied so to eliminate corruption you need political will you need a, a complete overhaul of the institutions and the processes the policing mechanisms the judiciary the laws i mean you can have the best laws in the country but if your judiciary is unable to function for whatever reason then those laws are pointless and you may have the best laws in the country but if the law enforcement agencies are unwilling or unable to enforce the laws then again those laws are, will, are are pointless so so it is not blockchain that will eliminate corruption it is reforms of india's institutions india's failing decrepit colonial institutions it is that reform it is those reforms whenever they happen some day in the future hopefully it is that that will eliminate corruption it is political will that will eliminate corruption today you have corruption throughout the length and the breadth of india the country practically runs on corruption the governance governance system at the lowest levels in many places i'm not saying everywhere okay don't get me wrong i'm i'm not saying everywhere but in many parts of the country you have significant corruption at the lowest levels and uh, so so that's because everyone knows about it and no and and the system not only tolerates it the system encourages it so no matter how, how much technology you bring in blockchain or anything else as long as the system um the system is as long as the system is complicit in corruption nothing can change so it's political will where is india's war against corruption where is it when that happens you will have freedom from corruption not blockchain can't really do much about it Right, let's take some more interesting question. Ra- 
Right. Satoru Gojo says, where, um, how did the idea of string theory come? Is there any alternative to it? Because many scientists disproved it. So I think uh, string theory is a response to the problem of gravitation. Uh, we need to find a way of... Uh, see, the thing is this. When we have a very successful theory of gravitation. It's called general relativity. The general theory of relativity. Four-dimensional space-time. Mass curves space-time. And the curvature of space-time tells mass how to move. That sort of thing. So it's a very extremely successful theory. It works brilliantly. And yet it is a flawed theory. We know that because at the ultra microscopic scale, it blows up. The Einstein equations blow up. They give up. They give rise to singularities. They throw up infinities. And whenever you have an infinity, you, whenever you have a singularity, it tells you there's something wrong with the equations. You are getting a division by zero, which is unphysical. And therefore these infinities, the singularities are... Uh, a pointer to the fact that there is a flaw in general relativity. You, we are unable to reconcile general relativity and quantum mechanics and quantum field theory. So you are, the equations of general relativity break down in uh, at the smallest levels and quantum physics doesn't work in curved space-time. So that's what's happening. And that is the reason why people started thinking, physicists started looking for alternatives, for new approaches to solving this problem. Now, we already had theories in extra dimensions. We had Kaluza-Klein theory, which is quite old, actually. It threw up very interesting results. So, physicists... And, and we know that our theories are approximate theories. For instance, we treat particles as points, as zero-dimensional points, which is unphysical. Because particles, no matter how small they may, they may be in the quantum realm, they still are physical objects, physical entities, and they would occupy some volume of space. And therefore, to treat them as particles, as, as, as a point, particles is actually unphysical and therefore physicists decided to try a new approach to to start with the fundamental unit of 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 the material universe as being a one dimensional vibrating string and they thought let's try to construct a particle physics out of this and that was the beginning of string theory so instead of zero-dimensional points, we have one-dimensional strings. Strings that vibrate, strings that could, could loop around each other, the strings that could become circles, and the uh, frequency of vibration gives rise to certain properties and so on. I'll not go into the details, but that essentially is the idea of string theory. Now, to make this theory work, to, to, to create a cohesive, coherent theory of, 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 uh, out of this, a proper model of the world, of the universe, they had to extend this into 11 dimensions, I think, 10, 11, 13. I mean, there's a number of different flavors and versions of theory, string theory. And yet it has not worked. String theory has been around for, I think, almost half a century or, or more, if I am not mistaken. And yet it has not produced a single testable prediction thus far. And if a theory is unable to produce a single prediction that can actually be tested, then the theory is worthless. Right? And the theory, this uh, string theory th throws up this uh, 
the string theory landscape 10 raised to 500 different possible universes that's the which is the string theory multiverse and uh, so the main problem with string theory is that it is unable to make a single testable prediction and that is the biggest failure of string theory a theory has a theory has to be able to produce predictions that can be tested and that is why it is increasingly obvious that this is a failed theory the mathematics is beautiful the mathematics is extremely complex it's very it's it's like you're doing mathematics instead of physics you claim that you're a physicist but you're just producing equations you're you're playing with equations producing extremely complicated uh, mathematical results and calling it physics and today you if you look at the various journals, if you look at the physics preprint archive and so on, you will find dozens of new papers being published every day. But where are we progressing? Are we progressing anywhere? Is there any new progress being done in physics? No, none. And therefore, it is clear that string theory has failed. And yet the major funding that is uh, available in the West, especially in the United States, is all in the field of string theory. All the academic departments physics departments in, in physics are filled with string theorists. I, when, I, when I say physics, I mean theoretical physics. So they're all staffed by, by string theorists. It's like a mafia which has taken over physics and they are unwilling to let go because their entire livelihood depends on it. And that's the big problem right now. That's why physics is unable to progress. People are unwilling to look at different, different uh, ideas and uh, People who try to look at uh, different ideas, uh, ideas that are outside of string theory, get marginalized. Their work isn't is is rejected. It is not published, and so on. So that's the problem. So alternatives to string theory. I mean, there there are plenty of alternatives, but there is no funding available to pursue these alternatives, and that's why uh, it's it's uh, it's not really working out. Well, I I would say that we need to look at physics in uh, three plus one dimensions, four dimensions at most. We need to uh, rethink our approach try to re-simplify things instead of over-complicating things the way they have been done in, in string theory. We need to uh, take a, a variety of different approaches. I'm not, I'll not go into what approaches, but there are plenty available. So it's it's high time we dump this failed theory and uh, and look at novel approaches. Approaches in four dimensions, not, not 11 dimensions or whatever the hell that is, right? So that is what needs to happen. It was a good idea but it's not produced any results. So it needs to be discarded, at least for the time being. Right. Good question. Let us uh, take some more questions. As always, um, Akhanda Bharat says, people try to claim that all our ancient astronomy, mathematics, alchemy, technology, philosophy, etc. has been derived from the Greeks. Is it true? It is entirely, completely, 100% untrue. It is false. Indian civilization predates the Greek civilization by 7,000 years, at least. So the earliest evidence that we have of Greek civilization is about 3,000, about 3,500 years from before today. Okay, if, if you want to be charitable, let's say 4,000 years before today, around 2000 BCE. But that is that is the Greek prehistory. That's not really Greek civilization. The actual Greek civilization, the flowering of the city-states, etc. happened about 2,500 or so years ago. So that is Greek civilization. India's civilization predates that by thousands of years. 
if you look at uh, when the Greeks came to India during uh, the time of uh, Alexander the Robber and Seleucus Nicator, they discovered that the Indians, us, our ancestors, had a system, a calendar that dated back to around 6,000 something BCE, which is eight and a half thousand years before today. That is how deep, how old our reckoning was of time. We had been keeping records since around six and a half thousand BCE. That's how our, that's how old our memory was, our, our recorded memories were, right? So the Greeks were, were infants compared. The Greek civilization was, was an infantile civilization compared to Indian civilization. With the earliest recorded, the earliest record of a supernova is from about 5,000 years before today or something like that in North India and Kashmir and so on. So we have been doing uh, recording astronomical events for thousands of years. We have a very ancient philosophical and mathematical tradition, astronomical tra tradition. Uh, you go back 5,000 years, our technology was the most advanced in the world. The uh, Saraswati Sindhu civilization, Saraswati Sindhu phase of our civilization, if you look at the cities, the the city planning, the town planning, the grid system, the drainage system, the multi-storied buildings, the uh, standardization of weights and measures, the hydro engineering, the harbors, and so on and so forth. It's incredibly advanced for the time. The cities were better planned, better organized than today's modern Indian cities. The drainage systems then, 5,000 years before today, were better than today's drainage systems and so on. And and so on, right? So so this these claims are are desperate Eurocentric claims. Uh, the Europeans realized about a few centuries ago that they there's they were no match to India's civilization to to the antiquity and depth and profundity of India's civilization. So therefore, they invented these claims because uh, the the so-called Western civilization, whatever the hell that is. Is believe they claim that its its origin is Rome and Greece and and uh, Judea and Egypt and and uh, and Mesopotamia. So that is the origin of of the so-called Western civilization, and therefore they want to attribute everything to that region, to either to Egypt or to the Jews, Judea, or to Greece or to Rome. That's it. And they want to deny that India had uh, was better than any of these other empires or so-called civilizations. And that's why they make these claims. And our professors, our history writers, our so-called eminent historians and so on, they blindly ape these Western claims. And that's why we are taught all this nonsense. So we need to deprogram our minds and realize that our civilization is the India is the mother of civilization. India is the true cradle of civilization. Everything sprang from here before it went elsewhere. Right, some more questions. I have answered some questions before. Lovdeep Singh says, how can Russia be a strategic partner in war with China for India? Well, I don't know if there's going to be a war. There could be a possibility of war in the next year or so, perhaps, possibly. China's economy is floundering. China is desperate and reaching. See, when your economy is floundering, when you're not doing well, that's when you want to 
that's when your leaders become over ambitious they want to reach for something before it's un, before it's no longer available and it is this desperation that often leads to to rash decisions and to war so as we speak right now there is this build up of troops on india's northern border with tibet which is currently occupied by china right now temporarily so the chinese are amassing troops and equipment etc in tibet on the border with india and india is also responding in kind and there is a very tense situation going on right now what is china's intention we don't know yet but we are clearly capable of responding uh i think we will be stocking our brahmos missiles right now in case the chinese try something that's going to be problematic for them now what is russia's role in this right now there's no role right right now there is no role for russia in this the russians are kind of trying to uh take a neutral stance when it comes to china and india this relationship they're trying to keep an equidistant stance they have supplied the s400 missile system to the, to the chinese but they are also supplying the same thing to us i am sure the chinese are not very pleased about this at all and yet the russians are doing it so they are arming india india and china with the same uh missile system which is an extraordinarily good and powerful missile system so the the russians are in a quasi kind of alliance with china to some extent they also have nuclear missiles pointed at china they certainly don't trust china but they are currently in a some kind of alliance with china against the west because the west is very much anti russia also anti china so for the time being their interests converge to some extent and that's why they are working together but the russians also know that in the long run the chinese are a very big threat to russia and therefore they will also want to maintain good relations with india because india is the only nation state in asia that can possibly uh counterbalance china or pose a genuine threat to china there is no other nation in asia that can pose a threat to china the way india can india has the potential to pose a significant and and, and genuine threat to china if india's economy keeps growing for the next 10 years then india's military might will also grow correspondingly proportionately so if india is able to avoid conflict for the next 10 years then it's going to be a very significant challenger to china it's a question of 10 years and sustained growth once india's economy crosses the 10 trillion dollar mark then well that's what we need to go for that's what we need to achieve at the earliest and we have taken significant strides in that direction I mean, we, we we may not realize it but our economy has been transformed in the past 5 years or so i mean do you realize how easy it is to do online transactions now with your phone using upi uh, even i i hear even street vendors and vegetable sellers etc and small shop owners are using uh, these uh, these paytm and uh, gpay and what not right you can you can buy vegetables through the through this thing it it was it was never you could not even dream of that 5 years ago so india has exceeded even china in online transactions per month that is a fantastic thing i think the gst has also opened up india to to i mean earlier you had all these barriers to trade to to transport goods and supplies across india so that has disappeared now 
even though the gst needs to further be reformed and yet it is a it is a very significant step in the right direction and so on and so forth so so india's economy is now going to really take off in the next 5 10 years so that's what india needs to aim for india needs to sustain this growth anyhow you elect the wrong people it's all going to go backwards so remember these guys and girls so that's what needs to happen and that's why the chinese are currently worried their economy is grinding down our economy is slowly but steadily growing so russia is going to be watching this russia is watching this very closely they will look out for their own interests so we cannot expect russia to be an overt partner in case india goes to war with china but it is certainly in russia's long term interests to be on india's side so it's an interesting situation right now uh most likely there won't be any war if there is a war it could happen in the northern border a short sharp war the chinese may try to grab some more territory like in 1962 i think they will if they do that it's going to be a disaster for them and so on so let's let's wait and watch the situation is currently quite fluid we don't know what's going to happen we could have a war possibly not a major war but a localized short sharp war like the kargil war that sort of thing is certainly possible maybe in the next few months maybe before winter sets in maybe in the next year or so i don't know let's see it all depends on the chinese india won't initiate a war like that india won't initiate a war but if the chinese do initiate it we will be able to respond properly and teach them a lesson so let's see Pratik says can we say that lord hanuman was of homo erectus race and the ramayana era was a coexistence between homo erectus and homo sapiens no we have absolutely no evidence that uh, supports such a claim i think homo erectus died out at least 100000 years before today and we know that the out of africa migration happened about 70 75000 years before today right and therefore it is uh, very hard to imagine a coexistence of homo sapiens and homo erectus i am not ruling it out completely it is certainly possible if new evidence emerges we may get a different kind of idea of what happened but from the best evidence that we have right now it appears that there was that the coexistence of homo sapiens and homo erectus may have been very unlikely but of course if more if new evidence turns up that we may have to revise this understanding now i don't think the ramayana era was like 70 80 90 100000 years ago i do not believe that at all it's it's simply not possible the ramayana uh, ev- the events of the ramayana most likely happened sometime in the last 1000 10000 years uh, i think it's uh, quite a reach of the imagination to say, to say it happened 10 or 12 or 50000 years ago most likely within the last 10000 years and uh, so we still don't know when it happened there are all kinds of competing claims i know what you guys are going to comment now but you know what nothing is proven thus far none of the claims has been independently verified or corroborated and therefore i'm not going to uh, say that this claim is correct or that claim is correct my gut feeling is that it is somewhere in the past 10000 years cannot be before that i i just simply i mean it doesn't make any sense right there is something called glottochronology the rate of change of languages now we know that the sanskrit language has changed if you look at the sanskrit language that is 
that you see in the Rig Veda, and if you look at the kind of Sanskrit that was spoken in the Atharva Veda, you can see differences. You can see that the language language has changed. Certain words have gone out of usage. New words have turned up. In the Rig Veda, the word for night is not Ratri. It is Nakta. The old Rig Vedic Sanskrit word for night was Nakta. And in the Atharva Veda, their word for night is Ratri. The word Nakt has gone out of existence. So language is change. If the Ramayana happened 12, 15,000 years ago, then how come it was written in proper Sanskrit? How is it even possible? And clearly we know that the Ramayana comes after the Rig Veda. And we, and the best, I mean, tentatively one would imagine that the Rig Veda was written sometime around 6,000 or BCE or somewhere around that period because that's when the Saraswati was in its prime. And therefore, uh, if the Ramayana happened some four, five, six thousand years ago or thereabouts, then there is no chance of Homo erectus being around in the Indian subcontinent at the time. And therefore, these speculations that uh, many people make are unfortunately uh, not consistent with the evidence that we have at hand. Right? And therefore, I I would like to say that... uh, one cannot say that Lord Haruman was was of whichever other species and so on, right? So we have to examine the evidence that we have at hand and formulate our theories based on that evidence, right? That's all I would like to say about this. So good question, Pratik. Sagnik Banerjee says, why is the distant universe so homogeneous when the Big Bang theory seems to predict larger measurable anisotropies of the night sky than those observed. Are you sure what you know what you're asking? <laughs> okay, maybe you do. So here's the thing. The universe is not completely homogeneous. Right? I don't know what uh, predictions of larger measurable anisotropies you're referring to. Uh, here's the thing. You see, when... Uh, when we actually observe, when we actually map the cosmic microwave background radiation across the universe, we do observe anisotropies across the universe. Right? So this is something that is symptomatic of quantum fluctuations that happened in the very, very early universe, right after the Big Bang. Quantum fluctuations are something that uh, arises out of quantum field theory, space-time, space itself, even the vacuum of space is not empty. It's filled with these quantum fluctuations, virtual particles coming in and out of existence, arising and annihilating each other and so on. So you have quantum fluctuations happening in the vacuum of space. In the early, very early universe, these quantum fluctuations would have led to over-densities, localized over-densities in space, which could have seeded primordial black holes, which could then have eventually, over time, become the seeds of supermassive black holes that are the, the center of galaxies. So the very early universe was not homogeneous. It had regions of, of over-densities seeded by quantum fluctuations, and that's the result of that is visible in the night sky, in, in the 
in the map of the cosmic microwave background radiation so uh, there was this uh, this uh, satellite called w map that was that was uh, launched i don't know 20 30 years ago 1980s 1990s thereabouts i don't remember when so it was the first experiment that mapped the cosmic microwave microwave background radiation that you see in the universe and it showed these anisotropies these regions where you had non homogeneous distribution of cmbr the temperature the, the temperature fluctuations and all that then recently about 10 years ago the planck satellite the planck experiment was launched which gave us a better view of it the resolution was in, was improved and you saw that these anisotropies are very 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 prevalent across the universe these are very small differences in the temperature and yet they are they are very much visible they are very much measurable and it also appears that the universe is not completely homogeneous homogeneous means whichever direction you look at it anisotropy means whichever direction you look at it look at the universe in isotropy means that it is the same so we have anisotropies and the universe may not even be completely homogeneous you look in one direction you look in a different direction there may be some differences in the density of of matter and so on so you know what right now we are in our infancy when it comes to observational astrophysics ast- astronomy etc our instruments are very primitive as our instruments get better better we'll be able to peer deeper into the night sky into the universe and we will be able to see the re- universe in a better resolution when you're watching a video if you're watching the video in 480p it is quite uh it is quite granular it's quite noisy now if you if you change the resolution to 720p it gets better yeah yeah now you can see more details if you change the resolution to 1080p hd resolution it gets even better so this broadcast this telecast this live stream is in hd 1080p so you will be able to see significant details here if i uh, if we change it even further to 4k you will see even more details and that's the same with our astronomical instruments initially with the with the w map experiment you were able to see only fuzzy details now the planck experiment has given us a better resolution and you can see more details in the future we will be, we'll be able to see even more so as we get more data we will get a better understanding of how the universe is right now from what we see it is a little early to to make to draw conclusions about how the universe is right so our knowledge is going to keep changing it's going to keep uh improving as we get more information we will be able to understand the universe better but we certainly have anisotropies when we certainly have in homogeneities in the universe right let's move on to the next question all right let's see some more let's just see some more questions Kostub Shukla says according to you who will be the top 5 superpowers on the basis of military and economic strength and where does india stand in the list by 2025 2025 is day after tomorrow more or less so the top 5 so see the, what is the definition of the term superpower a superpower is a nation that can that has a global reach and a global influence it can influence events in any part of the world at very short notice 
so let's say the americans want to bomb a terrorist ship in in the south pacific region they can most likely have it done in the next one or two hours if they want any time so that's the kind of global reach they have they have aircraft carriers throughout the world they have satellites that map every part of the world they have submarines nuclear submarines etc in various parts of the world they have army bases on every single continent except antarctica hopefully antarctica right so they have this global reach they have a network that is global military network and so on and so forth so that is the definition of a superpower so by that definition the united states is the only superpower in the world today the chinese are an aspiring superpower they want to create that sort of global network of power and influence right so they are building towards that but they are far from reaching that objective they have only a few military bases in the indo pacific region there's one in djibouti in uh, eastern africa there are a couple of bases in pakistan that can be uh, regarded or construed as dual use military, military naval bases so they are trying to create a network of ports etc that can in the future be used for military purposes but they are way 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 behind the united states when it comes to the global network of military bases and other, other things so the chinese are far behind the us and yet if you look at the economic might they may catch up with the us in the next 10 years or so most likely it will happen the military power is still way behind the us the russians are a former superpower they had that kind of ability in the past after the collapse of the ussr much of that got destroyed much of that was frittered away during the time of mr boris yeltsin so the russians are a very major regional power but they have the greatest and uh, largest nuclear arsenal in the world it's even greater than that of the us so these are the top 3 powers if you look at the strength of nuclear of the nuclear arsenal the uh, the russians are number 1 the americans are number 2 and most likely the chinese are number 3 so those are the top 3 military powers when it comes to smaller regional powers one would imagine that india is one of them the japanese are one of them the french are a significant power because they also have a, a kind of global uh, power projection capability at least in the in the indian ocean because they have islands that they administer in the indian ocean they are part of the french uh, nation then the french nation state they have they are called overseas territories or something there is the island of reunion in the uh, indian ocean near the seychelles and uh, there are some other islands as well i think in the in the south pacific etc so they have uh, this sort of uh, system and that's why they have a significant naval presence in the indian ocean so the french are a significant naval power they have nuclear weapons they have nuclear submarines that carry these ballistic missiles so i would say the top 5 powers there's only one superpower but you have the us as number 1 china as number 2 you the russians is number 3 because they're a significant power militarily if not economically then you have powers like the 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 french india and japan maybe the uk but the uk is not really much of a power actually and in asia the iranians are a, 
are a significant power to some extent because at least they are willing to project power beyond their borders india is a massive power but it thus far it has chosen not to uh, project power beyond its borders except for one or two instances like balakot or the myanmar um, surgical strikes but the way the iranians operate in other countries through covert means through their intelligence networks spies assassins all that the way the israelis do it globally india has thus far chosen not to do that there must be a good reason for that maybe it may change in the future let's wait and watch but i would say that these are the major powers as of now 2025 is just a couple of years ago so not much will change by then but by 2030 things may most likely change significantly if india's economy keeps growing the way it should then india could be a top 3 power economically and militarily by 2030 god's willing let's see all right let's let's see some more good questions string theory i answered already okay i can see lots of new questions let me take some of these book recommendation vivek bharadwaj says which book should i read to get an introduction to indian philosophy hmm the thing about book recommendations is that i i never i can never remember the right books you see it's like this i mean people have commented in the past criticism that you should at least recommend one or two books the thing is that if you read three books you will remember the three books if you read 3000 books you will not remember any of them you will remember the ideas right so that's the problem i face i cannot remember the names of the books all the ideas are there they are all mixed together but i am unable to remember specific names of books but let me recommend one i think i have a book here somewhere okay let us recommend this book it's called philosophies of india joseph campbell and heinrich zimmer this may not be the best book it may not be the best introductory book it's a massive book but hey you want a book recommendation here you go here's one and then there is an even more massive book which is uh, radhakrishnan's book about indian book about indian philosophy i don't know where it is it's somewhere else not here i bought many other bookshelves so here's a couple of book recommendations go for it sir <laughs> right niladri says do you not think that it will be, will be difficult to unite india in the coming few years well 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 india is a very disunited country it's as if we are a coalition of smaller countries every state has its own language they have their own political agenda every state acts as if it is a separate country many states act like that especially in southern india especially in so called northeast of india we have our own culture we have our own ways don't interfere too much and so on 
So yeah, it is a big challenge. It's because of India's so-called federal structure. They say it's India's strength. I say it's India's biggest weakness. A nation state as large as India, a subcontinent-sized nation state, needs a very strong, powerful central government, which should be able to supersede the state governments in most matters pertaining to national security and the national interest. And uh, we need a unifying um, a unifying identity. Unfortunately, today what we find is that every community, every religion, every state seems to place their local identity above the national identity. My religion comes before the nation. My language comes before the nation. My state comes before the nation. We are a different kind of people. We, we do things differently in our state. Don't impose this or that on us. That's the kind of nonsense that is prevalent in certain parts of India. Whether it's in northern India, whether it's in southern India, whether it's, I mean, it's everywhere, in eastern India and so on and so forth. So that is a, a legacy of the system our so-called alleged founding fathers have created. I do not recognize those people as our founding fathers. They're not our founding fathers. India was not founded in 1947. And yet we treat those people as our founding fathers and we worship their nonsense, whatever they've left behind for us. It is actually extraordinarily, extraordinarily detrimental to India's national interest and our civilizational identity. So yes, it will be difficult to unite India in the coming few years. Like I have said many times, it's a question of leadership. When the right leader emerges, he or she will need to have the willpower, the force of character, the force of personality, and the force of will to unify the country. Whether the country likes it or not, that's how it needs to happen. You cannot, this, you know, the Chinese complain, they, no, they don't complain, they, they snigger at India, they laugh at India, they say there's too much democracy in India. Look at India, Perfect example of too much democracy. This is the reason why democracy is wrong and it doesn't work. You know, they have a good good point there. There's too much democracy in India. Democracy means you can say things that are anti-national in nature. You can... You can... Uh, <laughs> you can celebrate Pakistan's victory over India. It's funny that people, certain people are so gleeful when Pakistan defeats India in a sporting a sporting encounter. And the same people don't care when Pakistan defeats Afghanistan in a sporting en encounter. Right? So they are happy only when Pakistan defeats India. But when Pakistan defeats New Zealand or, or Afghanistan, it doesn't matter to them. So it tells you that it's not about Pakistan or any sporting thing. It's just about being anti-India. And being happy when India's big enemy is able to defeat India once in a thousand years or so. So yeah, we have this sentiment which is very open, very prevalent, and it is embraced by the liberal media, the so-called liberal media, and uh, various people and various establishment figures and all that, various intellectuals and celebrities. And in a nation that tolerates this sort of behavior, when you have a nation, a system that tolerates this sort of behavior, it encourages other people to do that. And such a nation is on very shaky ground. So these are the fundamental, deep-rooted 
problems that India is currently facing. It needs to find ways of dealing with them. Such behavior can never be tolerated. Would the Chinese ever tolerate anti-China behavior from a Chinese citizen? I think not. That's why the Chinese are a much stronger state currently compared to India. And if you look at our ancient wisdom, treatises like the Arthashastra, etc., there is very clear prescriptions on how to deal with anti-national, anti-civilizational behavior. Very clear prescriptions. So I think we need to hearken back to our ancient wisdom, dump this fake, this entire fake system that we have been left with after the transfer of power from the British. And we need to recreate ourselves afresh if that can be possible. So for that, we will need real leadership. I'm not saying the current leadership is good or bad or whatever. It is not. Um, this is not to be interpreted as a comment about India's current leadership. India is in a specific situation right now, as a specific position. India is economically still a small nation. And therefore, India cannot do certain things that would actually be good for India at right now. Deng Xiaoping said, the, the Chinese statesman Deng Xiaoping said that when you are weak and when you are not strong enough, you keep your head down, you bide your time, you hide your capabilities and you build it towards becoming great again. That's what Deng Xiaoping said. I think India will do well to emulate that and to heed that wisdom. Next 5, 10, 15 years or so, just keep your head down. Don't show off your capabilities and build, build, build. And once the time is right, we can reunite in India the way we need to. And we can deal with the external adversaries the way we need to. So it's a question of biding one's time and building, rebuilding the nation. And when the time is right, we can take the necessary steps in the national interest, in the civilizational interest, in the interest of all Indian citizens. That's what needs to happen. All right. Let's take some other questions. Okay. Some... <laughs> Bhante Gupta says my views on Black Lives Matter and uh, the Indian player, cricket players taking a knee before a cricket match listen Black Lives Matter is a very valid and legitimate movement if you know the, if you study the history of America you will see how the black the African origin people were treated the treatment was horrific inhumane barbaric primitive and brutal so the so clearly, they they have been treated in a horrific manner. Even today, even today, they are second-class citizens of, of of some kind. In 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 certain ways, in the U.S., if you are a black person, you are far more likely of being shot by police. There is racial profiling. There's so much more. So Black Lives Matters matter is a legitimate and valid uh, movement. But of course, we have to also recognize the fact that it's a political movement. Uh, in the U.S., you have two major, uh, two major political parties, the Republicans and the Democrats. The Democrats are very much pro-BLM. And BLM doesn't have that much of support 
compared to the Democrats among the Republicans and the people who support the Republican Party. So this is even this I, I I recognize that it's a very legitimate movement, but it's also a political movement. So if you support this movement in the US, if you're an American, if you support the movement, you are making a political statement. In in a way, it's a political statement in favor, in support of the Democratic Party and in opposition to the Republican Party, in a way. Right? I'm not saying it's right or wrong or anything. It's just an observation as an outsider. Right? Now, Black Lives Matter is an American uh, issue. It's an American movement. We certainly can never support racism. Racism is abhorrent. It is barbaric. It's inhuman. And uh, we cannot support racism ever. So now BLM has no context in the Indian uh, socio-cultural milieu. There are no black people who were marginalized or oppressed in India. Right? Uh, black people were brought to India. Some black people, some African origin people were brought to India as slaves by the Turco-Arabic uh, occupiers of India. And uh, their descendants still live in India today. And they live as Indian citizens, equal Indian citizens, right? They have the same rights as Indians, as all Indians. They are So it's a very small number of people and they have never faced any oppression from the people or the culture of India. So the point is that BLM has no relevance in India. There are no BLM issues in India. And it's a political movement in the US. Now, these Indian cricketers, they took a knee in support of BLM, which is fine. I don't have a problem in supporting a legitimate movement. But then they can no longer claim that don't mix cricket and politics. Don't mix sport and politics. The refrain you hear from Indian cricketers all the time is that don't mix sport and politics. Do not talk about politics. This is a political issue. Don't ask me. We are sports people. We'll talk about sport. Now what happened? They have made a political st uh, statement here. BLM. They can no longer claim that sport and politics don't mix because they themselves brought politics into sport by taking the knee. Do they even know what they were doing? And are there no issues in India that need their support more than BLM? You have a genocide of Hindus happening in Bangladesh. Did any of them say a word about that? No. You have the Kashmiris who have been expelled, the Kashmiri Hindus who are living as refugees in their own country. Is there a word against uh, against that, that atrocity? No. But BLM, Black Lives Matter, I have nothing against Black Lives Matter. It is a valid, legitimate movement. I support the the quest of the, of the African Americans for equal rights. I do. But it is not an Indian issue. And if Indian cricketers want to make a, a statement against any oppression or injustice, they should look closer to home. There are issues happening in our own neighborhood. Whether it is the atrocities against minorities in Pakistan, whether it is atrocities against minorities in Afghanistan, whether it is the near genocide of Hindus in Bangladesh, whether it is what's happened to the Kashmiri Hindus and so on and so forth. There is so much that needs their support. They are very prominent, very visible people. 
lots of young indians look up to these cricketers and they want to support blm which they don't even know what what it's what it really is so i think it's shameful it is extremely disappointing these people have done that right and they have themselves mixed up sport with politics so i think it would be hypocritical of them now after this to to hide behind the statement of don't mix sport and politics because they themselves have politicized this entire thing and the thing is that this political uh posturing and this virtue signaling of theirs has unfortunately interfered with their performance the way they lost to i mean i have nothing against losing but the manner in which they lost was atrocious it was shameful india had a proud record of always beating pakistan in world cup encounters these people uh brought that down they they, they broke that that incredible streak and the way they lost was 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 shameful right so i would i would say i would conclude by saying to all the youngsters please choose your heroes wisely do not hero worship entertainers cricketers are entertainers these people are paid crores of rupees to entertain you do not hero worship entertainers find real heroes to emulate real heroes these people have not sacrificed anything they haven't sacrificed their lives they haven't sacrificed sacrificed their blood their families or anything to build up this nation right so treat this as entertainment and entertainment only do not hero worship them do not treat them as idols to emulate that's all i would like to conclude this question this answer by saying all right good question smith says how do we how can we differentiate between distorted history and real history experience read a lot use your intelligence ask a lot of questions question everything read history from lots of different perspectives and slowly slowly you will start getting an understanding of what is right and what is clearly wrong after some time after you read a lot you will develop an instinct a sixth sense which will tell you when something is a distorted piece or a fabricated piece of history so that's the only way this you can either read a lot and trust your own judgment or you need to find somebody who is trustworthy and who can inform you so it is all up to you and your judgment your wisdom your intelligence to do that right that's that's all i can say about this it's it it takes a lot of reading and experience to to reach that stage atharva says what will be the impact on the world if iran gets nuclear weapons what will be the impact or effect on india please also throw a light on the government of in of iran kingdom of saudi arabia and iran which is better that's a whole lot of questions in one see iran is if you look at the history of iran since 1979 which is the islamic revolution when ayatollah ruhollah khomeini came to power by ousting the shah of iran mohammad reza pahlavi the so called iranian revolution so after that iran has taken a certain political and geopolitical trajectory iran has been very active and vigorous in pursuing its interests beyond its borders it has a very 
active uh, uh, active uh, what do you call it spy agency intelligence agency they have uh, agents ac- across uh, across uh, west asia they have a very significant presence in iraq right now iraq is i think at least 40% shia and those uh, that particular demographic will be pro iran so they have so the iranians have a significant presence there right their intelligence services and all that uh, they also are active in uh, in uh, syria they are active in afghanistan to some extent and uh, they are also uh, active in yemen and they are uh, they are assisting the houthis i believe in their struggle against the Saudi Arabian regime and so on. So the Iranians are very active in that manner, beyond their borders. They are not shy from projecting power beyond their borders. And they are an expansionist regime. They seek to, in a way, recreate the ancient Persian Empire. The Persian Empire of Nadir Shah, who perpetrated a bloodbath in Delhi, so they want to recreate the persian empire and imagine if this regime were to get nuclear weapons do you think they will behave the same way they behave right now hell no it would be a threat to everybody in this neighborhood it would be a threat to pakistan the iranians are not particularly friendly towards pakistan it would be a threat for india it would be a threat for the saudis it would be a threat for everybody it would be a threat for israel as well Iran should not get nuclear weapons. It is in no way beneficial for India for Iran to get nuclear weapons. The Iranians are not a very friendly, nice power. Okay, So, so the effect on India would be a, a dangerous nuclear-armed terrorist state of sorts in the neighborhood. You could look upon Iran as a terrorist state. They have undertaken terrorist activities in various parts of the neighborhood. They even handed over an Indian citizen, a businessman, to the Pakistanis. So they are not friendly towards India. You know who it is, right? Kulbushan Jadav. He is an Indian businessman. He was an Indian businessman who was working in Iran, in the Iranian part of Balochistan. I think it was Chabahar or where was it? Somewhere there. And they allowed the Pakistani ISI to kidnap an Indian citizen, a businessman from Iranian soil and take him into Pakistan. So Iran is in no way a friend of India. Remember that. It is almost like a terrorist state in many ways like Pakistan. They indulge in proxy wars with various other states and so on. So it would not be a good thing for the neighborhood, for the, stab- st- for the stability of the neighborhood and the security of the neighborhood if the Iranians were to acquire nuclear weapons. Not a good deal. Uh, KSA and Iran, which is better? I, From India's perspective, I think we have better relations with the, with the Saudis than with the Iranians as of right now. So maybe the, the Saudis are better uh, partners for India on the geopolitical arena than the Parsis. The Iranians, right? Dungar Singh Chauhan says, What if Titanoboa was alive today? That's a lovely question. 
in case you don't know what Titanoboa was, let me let me show you. Titanoboa was an ancient serpent, a very old ancient snake. Let me share the screen with you and uh, show you what this wonderful animal looked like. Here we go. So if you search Google for Titanoboa, you get this. So it's a very it's a very large snake that lived in Central and South America about 60 million years ago. It could grow up to 12 or 13 meters long and reach a weight of 1.13 tons. Enormous, enormous serpent. As you can see, <laughs> that's how large this snake was. Huge, monstrous snake. Currently, the largest snake that exists on the planet is the anaconda, which is again in Southern America. A very large snake in itself, but this one was even larger. Enormous. Maybe the largest snake that ever existed. Uh, this gives you an idea of how large of how large this animal was. So if it was alive today, I think we would have rendered it extinct because humans are the apex predator on our planet. The most dangerous predator on earth is the human being. We may not be enormous, huge, powerful, physically imposing and all, but we are the most intelligent species and we are a warlike predatory species. We have wiped out more species than anybody else. If the Titanoboa was alive today, we would have eaten him to death. I'm sure, our ancestors. Right? So yeah, it would not pose a threat to us unless we would venture out in some places and so on, but it would not be a pro problem for us at all. And the reason why this giant snake went extinct is because it was so large. It was so large, it, it needed to hunt enormous animals and eat a lot just to stay alive. And as the climate changed and all, it, was, it became impossible for it to find sufficient prey to sustain itself. And that's why slowly this, this particular species of snake, of python, died out and went extinct. Uh, enormous animals are unsustainable over long periods, periods of time. We had this enormous shark called the Megalodon, which also went extinct. We had uh, enormous uh, sloths called Megatherium, which our ancestors, humans, drove extinct. Let me show you what that looked like. Let me share that just a second. So there was this species of sloth called Megatherium, which, which, uh, which was alive during uh, at the same time as humans, and our ancestors, ancient humans, hunted this down and drove it extinct. It was an enormous, enormous uh, species, as you can see. So our ancestors, I'm not sure where this thing lived. Did it live in Asia or did it live? Yes, this animal lived in South America. Uh, let me repeat that Wikipedia is not a reliable source of information, but it's the quickest source of information. So you can get a rough idea about things from this website, but you should not rely upon it, especially when it comes to history and culture. So Megatherium was a giant sloth that was endemic to South America. And it was wiped out by humans.
by humans who lived there so yeah so so my point is that no matter how large an animal is we will find a way to wipe it out that's just the nature of humans right so titanoboa would not have posed any genuine threat to us we would have dealt with it comfortably okay let's take some more interesting questions chaitanya chaturvedi says even if we don't believe in the aryan invasion theory should we call ourselves as aryans so the word arya is a sanskrit word which means civilized or superior you can interpret it in, in a number of ways but it essentially means a cultured refined and civilized person now it was an adjective it is something that you would ascribe to a person who has good manners and a good upbringing and a civilized uh, behavior right but when our distant ancestors moved out of india and went went to other uh, geographies for instance when our ancestors when ancient indians migrated westwards and went to persia and settled in persia the Pars- uh, the parshu parshu people who named uh, the parshwa people the parshwa people who gave this land their name and called it persia so these people once they settled in persia they used this term arya as an ethnic term as an ethnic self identification uh, as as a term of ethnic self identification so they interpreted this word as something that denoted their ethnicity so that was the first time that this word this term arya was used as an ethnic term and not just as an adjective and later the europeans tried to steal it from us the germans said that we are the aryans we are the aryan peoples the north europeans are the real aryans and all that and that is uh, the genesis to some extent of the aryan invasion theory this european supremacist theory eurocentric theory that everything good came from europe and not from india which is completely incorrect as i have uh, spoken about in the past so clearly it's not about believing or not believing in the aryan invasion theory it's about the the it's about the fact that evidence data doesn't agree with this theory all the evidence all the data points to the fact that if there was an invasion it happened out of india if, if there were migrations they happened out of india india was the source the origin of the genetics and the languages there are the indo european genetics and languages so it's not about believing and not behaving it's about the data doesn't is not consistent with this theory so should we call ourselves aryans well if any particular ethnicity is to be called the aryans it is the iranians and the indians the indians and the iranians nobody else nobody else can be called aryans so it's up to you whether you want to call yourself yourself an aryan or not all indians and all iranians can legitimately call themselves aryans if you call yourself an aryan if i call myself an aryan it is it would not be an incorrect statement right but in india we have never used this term as an ethnic identifier it was simply a word that meant that meant civilized and uh, yeah civilized essentially so if you wish to call yourself an aryan it would not be incorrect by any means
Okay, let's take some more questions. I have <clears throat> excuse me, addressed this question in the past. Is Jainism older than Sanatan Dharma? How is it related to Sanatan Dharma historically? Jainism, Jaina Dharma, Bodha Dharma, etc. They are all part of the larger Dharmic traditions. They are all part of Sanatan Dharma. Jainism, how old it is, it may actually be as old as the entire Dharmic tradition. We don't quite know. According to the Jain, uh, according to uh, the Jain worldview, uh, Vardhaman Mahavira was the 24th Tirthankar. He was a near contemporary of Gautam Buddha, which places him about two and a half thousand years before today. And he was the 24th Tirthankar of Jainism, which means there were 23 before him. So it goes back possibly several thousand years. We don't know. So we can't really tell how old Jainism is. It is clearly a very ancient uh, school of philosophy. It's a philosophical school of thought, just like Bodha Dharma. Even in Buddhism, even in Bodha Dharma, uh, Gautam Buddha was just one in a long line of Buddhas and there will be future Buddhas as well. So the, the thing is that Jainism is not a separate religion. It is just part of the Dharmic traditions. It is one of the Dharmic schools of thought. So this entire uh, narrative of, of, of uh, dividing the Indian traditions into separate religions is a colonial project. They have tried to divide and rule us. So, they, so today Indians believe that Jainism is a separate religion. Buddhism is a separate religion. Sikhism is a separate religion and Hinduism is a separate religion. That is a colonial Western worldview. It is all the same. This is all part of Dharma itself. That's it. So it is not related to Sanatan Dharma. It is a part of Sanatan Dharma. That's all I can say about this. Right, let's take some more questions. <laughs> what? Uh, okay, this is a question by Shivam Goel. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because I think I've taken this before, but why not? Let's address this again. What, according to you, is the origin of the Rajputs? And how much water does the claim of theory that they are descendants of Shaka tribes of Central Asia? We don't know what is the origin of Rajputs. Uh, because our historians have not addressed this question at all. Uh, there are only speculations and hypotheses, but there is no... You need detailed research into the lineages of each Rajput clan to try and understand what is the real origin of the Rajputs. The term Rajput is a very recent term, if you look at the entire uh, timeline of Indian history. Uh, the various aristocratic and, and warrior clans that were in existence in the 11th, 12th century or thereabouts or later, they came to be known as the Rajaputras, which eventually became uh, known as Rajputs. So these were royal clans, aristocratic clans, warrior clans. So this term is a more recent term. They were not called Rajputs 1500 years ago, even though the same clans were to some, some of these, these clans were still were already in existence, right? And then there's the question of what is the, who are the Gurjas and who are the Rajputs and all. Listen, these terms don't matter. We are all Indians. We all have the same origins. 
uh, are the Rajputs descendants of Scythians from Central Asia? I don't quite think so. There is no evidence that proves this. There is no evidence that corroborates such a claim. We do know that the Scythians did invade India. They settled down in India. They assimilated harmoniously with the people of India because they were the same ethnicity and they're the same culture and they're a very similar language. Uh, so the Scythians were essentially the same people as the Indians. They were able to just harmoniously blend into India, into the Indian population. If you look at the genetics of the people of Western and Northern India, you don't see it. You don't see any difference from the genetics of other parts of India. They're more or less the same. We know that Scythians did settle down in these parts of India. So yes, it is clear that some some people in these regions would have Scythian ancestry. Some people may even have some fractional Greek ancestry. And yet the genetics shows that they are all Indians just like everybody else. Right? So I am not quite sure how correct this theory is that some Rajputs may be descendants of Scythians. There may certainly be some Scythian blood in the Rajputs. There may also be Kushan blood in the Rajputs. Again, the Kushans were not foreigners. Some people comment on my videos and say that the Kushans were Huns or the Kushans were Turks. They were not. They were the same ethnicity, the same genetics as Indians. If you look at the Tarim Basin mummies, in uh, north of the Himalayas, they all have the R1A haplogroup, which is an Indian patrilineal lineage, right? And that is where the Kushans came from, from the Tarim Basin River region, the so-called Xinjiang region of present-day Chinese-occupied, whatever that part of the land is. So, so yes, Rajputs and Northern Indians and Western Indians will have some Scythian ancestry. They will have some Kushan ancestry, but they were genetically and culturally and religiously and ethnically Indian. So I think we need to stop looking at foreign ancestry for all of us. Or all of us. Even that foreign ancestry eventually came from India. So, but to answer your question, we still don't have clarity on the actual origins of the Rajput lineages because we have lost our records of history in the destruction of our universities and today's historians have not have 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 uh, deliberately not studied this issue because the Rajputs are are were India's protectors nobody sp uh, spilled more blood in the defense of India than the Rajputs right so it is best for India's historians to keep this part of India's history neglected and marginalized so that's what we can say right now you know that's that's all that's what we know which is very little unfortunately samarth asks if the majority of the harappan people lived on the banks of the saraswati river why are the people of india referred to as hindus which is a term derived from the indus river good question good very nice i like it so what we find is that if we look at the uh, if we look at the archaeological sites that are known to exist in the Sapta Sindhu region, which is the geography of the Saraswati and Sindhu river system, then there are more than fifteen hundred archaeological sites on the dried on on the banks of the dried riverbed of the Saraswati. We know it; it's there. They have not been explored. They have not been excavated, but we know they are there. 
more than 1,500 unexplored archaeological sites on the banks of the Saraswati, which is more than on the banks of any other river system, because this was the major, biggest river of this region. So, if this is the case, clearly this is the case, so then why are the people of India called Hindus, which is derived from the Indus River? Well, the first people from outside India to call Indians Hindus were the Parsis, the Persians, the Parshwa, the descendants of the Rigvedic Parshwa uh, clan. So these Parshwa people, they went out of India westwards, they settled in Persia and the land was named after them, Persia, Par- Parshwa, all that. And slowly, 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 they drifted away from Indian culture and civilization. They they adopted this new religion called Zoroastrianism, which is another polytheistic religion, but somewhat different from from India's ancient, uh, from their own ancestral religion and so on. And their language started changing slowly. I spoke about glottochronology in the past, in this episode itself, about an hour ago. So language changes. So their ancient Persian language was very similar to Sanskrit, but pronunciations were different in some cases. So Sa became Ha. So the Sindhu river, they called it the Hindu river because Sa became Ha in their language. Saraswati became Harawati. But by the time they started calling India, calling Sindhu Hindu, by that time the Saraswati had already dried out. The Saraswati dried out sometime around 1500 BCE. So then the memory of the Saraswati for these people, it slowly faded away. And then the only major river in this region which was left, the biggest river was the Sindhu, which they called the Hindu. So then they slowly started, I guess, calling the entire region as the Sindhu region or the Hindu region. And that's how this term Hindu became associated with the people of this region. And then when the Greeks came to India, they came via Persia. So they had already heard about this region called Hindu. And they most likely started associating the name with the people. And that's how they started calling Indians Hindus. And then the same thing was uh, you find with the Arabs and the Turks and so on. So when these foreigners... uh, started using this name by the time the Saraswati had already dried out in this region. And that's why only the Indus remained as the major river. And that's how this name was uh, was was put forth. So I hope that answers your question. Okay, let's take some more questions. Vanch asks, is it true that Ravindranath Thakur wrote Janaganamana, the Indian national anthem for the British king George V? Well, there are some people who say that it was not for the British king, it was for Lord Krishna. If you read the entire text of this poem, then it appears that it was actually in, in, uh, in praise of Lord Krishna. So the Adhinayak Adhinayak is Lord Krishna. That's what some people claim. I am not quite sure about that. I still have my doubts. But some very prominent people do claim that it was actually in in praise of Lord Krishna. So I think that, you know, uh, 
this needs to be examined in more detail i i i am a little doubtful about this claim i think that we need to examine this in more detail i'm not quite convinced okay let's take some more question Okay, Sid asks, how will the Kashmir dispute be resolved? What are the measures that are needed? See, the Kashmir dispute is not about Kashmir. If India was to give Kashmir all to Pakistan, you think the Pakistanis will become India's friends? No. They will still remain India's enemies. The problem is not Kashmir. The problem is Pakistan. As long as India exists, the Pakistanis will never be happy. Even if India hands over Kashmir to Pakistan, they will never be happy. They will continue their terrorist activities against India. They will continue their anti-India activities. So the problem, the root of the problem, whenever you have a problem, you have to do a root cause analysis. The Solution to peace between India and Pakistan is not handing over Kashmir to Pakistan. The root of the problem is the Pakistani mindset itself. The root of the problem is the nation state of Pakistan and the army and the ISI. So what needs to happen? How can the Kashmir problem be resolved? What are the measures that are needed? It's very simple. Pakistan needs to cease to exist as a nation. Pakistan needs to be fragmented into components smaller components uh, pok and uh, gilgit baltistan need to be reunited with india punjab needs to become an independent nation pakistani punjab pakistani punjab needs to become an independent nation the 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 pashtun parts of pakistan northwest frontier province etc need to be reunited with afghanistan sindh needs to become independent balochistan needs to be independent and then we can have good relations with all of these uh, independent countries. The Pakistani army needs to be dealt with appropriately. The ISI needs to be dealt with appropriately. I have, I, I genuinely have nothing against the people of Pakistan. They are equally victims. They live horrible lives. Uh, they, they themselves are oppressed, whether they know it or not. I genuinely don't have any anything against them. If they, if this happens, it should it should we should try to do it peacefully, without too much uh, resorting to military violence and all that. So the people should not suffer. But this is a problem for India. We need to resolve it. We need to make this happen in the next five to ten years at most. We cannot allow this problem to go on forever. The problem that Mr. Nehru and Mr. Gandhi created, right? With, with the uh, on the agenda of the British. So this needs to be resolved, and the only solution is the <clears throat> balkanization of Pakistan, which needs to happen in the next five to ten years. Like I said, India's economy is growing. When India reaches a certain stage in its economy, India's military strength will also be measurable in proportion to that. And when the time is right, the right actions need to be taken. So I think it's simply a matter of time. I think we should not 
wait for more than five or ten years. I think ten years at most to resolve this problem. Then we can deal with the real problem, which is, which is in the north. Right. Let's take some more questions. Sanskriti says, I don't know how someone can demand archaeological evidence of a text written thousands of years ago as paper and other writing materials cannot survive for so long. Well, Sanskriti, you are absolutely right. Paper is perishable. And especially in India's climate, especially in the past, when the monsoon was much more heavy, much heavier than it is today. So the climate, the temperature, etc., the warm temperature, the humid climate, etc., it's not conducive to the uh, preservation of, of organic material, tissues, paper, etc. These things will crumble and disappear and disintegrate. So it is obviously not right to expect such materials to last that long. But it works for these people for for the communists for the for the eurocentric historians etc who like to say that you know there is no evidence you guys have no written history and so on nothing has survived because nothing ever existed and so on so yeah they demand archaeological evidence and because we have not even done any archaeology in the past 70 years nothing significant so we don't have much archaeological evidence that proves certain things that corroborates certain events of our history from the distant past that are still remembered in our texts and in our collective memory and therefore they say that all these things are just myths and they never happened. So here's a question for these historians. Where is the archaeological evidence for Alexander the Greek? Show me one piece of archaeological evidence that proves this guy existed. We don't have his tomb. We don't have his bones. We don't have his remains. We don't have any evidence from archaeology that proves this guy ever existed. And there are no contemporary texts from the time when he is supposed to have existed. There are only three Greek texts that are near contemporaneous with Alexander's supposed existence. And Western historians have written thousands of books about Alexander on the basis of just three Greek texts. So that is the kind of duplicity and dual standards you find among historians. On the one hand, they claim this guy existed without any real evidence that he actually existed. On the other hand, we have such ancient texts that have, that have been preserved over thousands of years. And they still dispute our claims that our 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 itihas, our history, our recorded history of these ancient events. So it is the it is a clear uh, instance of double standards. So what needs to happen is we we need to start approaching our history from our own perspective. We need to create our own academic ecosystem of of genuine historians, young historians. We need to to fund them to support them to give them institutional and governmental support and empower them to uncover our true history. We need to have our own journals of history, 
where our research is published without seeking the approval of western historians when we start developing this this entire ecosystem academic ecosystem academic system and so on then we will regain our self respect and we will be able to properly start documenting our history and uncovering more history so that's what needs to happen anonymous asks how japan which is much smaller than india has an economy much better than us well that is the big question isn't it i mean it's very simple to answer nehru uh, sorry i should not say nehru i should say shri jawaharlal nehru ji the great prime minister of india that is the answer see when india gained its supposed independence in the transfer of power from the british to this uh, to the congress party india was in a much better state than japan japan had been nuked twice the entire country had been bombed to dust by the americans the country was in a disastrous state of shambles the entire economy was broken the nation was in ruins india had everything the british had built with our money the india had a working railway india had institutions and so on so india was in a much better position than japan or even china at the time and then what happened is that shri jawaharlal nehru happened he was appointed the prime minister of india by mr gandhi and other people in the british and he proceeded to strangle india's economy until the time he died so he imposed his version of fabian socialism on india he stifled india's economic growth he imposed this bureaucratic raj the license raj and whatever else you call it and it led to the nehruvian rate of growth 2 to 3% per year the japanese rebuilt the japanese came under american occupation which they still are under but they rebuilt their economy and they rebuilt their nation and they did all the right things the things that mr nehru should have done but never did so the japanese in a few years in a few decades raced ahead of india ahead of china and they became an economic superpower in the 1980s they were second only to the americans so it's all about leadership it's all about doing the right things it's all about having the right vision and implementing the right programs nehru shri nehru ji was a socialist he was in love with the soviet model of socialism even that he did not implement properly because the soviets were able to industrialize the country their country using their means of of marxism and socialism and all that the vietnamese the chinese also implemented such methods of social of social socialist economics and all that and that also worked to some extent mr nehru could not even do that properly so it's about uh, the leadership which which uh, strangled india india's economy and india's people for such a long time reforms were not done until 1992 and that too it was india was forced to do these reforms it's not like the the indian government wanted to do reforms at the time but india was left with no option in 92 so in a nutshell that's why japan did so much better than india even south korea did so much better than india even south korea was destroyed in the korean war in the 1950s even they were able to come out of that 
Singapore was a third world dump when it became independent. In just one generation, they became a first world country. It's possible if you have the right leaders. India had the wrong leader. Right. What else do we have? How much is the book Sapiens by uh, Harari biased? I haven't read the book. I haven't read it, so I can't tell you. Uh, I have it. I have many books that are waiting to be read. I don't have the time. I have a a reading list that is more than 100 books strong right now. So, yeah. So I haven't read it yet. Hopefully someday, in the next couple of years, I may read it if I find the time. All right. Let me take one more question. Vishal says, if Tibet is liberated in the next 15 to 20 years, should we integrate it and Nepal with India? Considering India will be the superpower in coming decades. Listen, there is no guarantee that India will be a superpower in the coming decades. There is no guarantee Tibet will be liberated in the next 15-20 years. We would like to see that happen. We would like to see both things happen. We would like to see India become a superpower in the next two two decades at most. We would like to see Tibet be liberated in the next 20 years, 15-20 years. I would like to see that happen, but there is no guarantee that will happen. We need the right leaders in place. We need the right succession a leader has a certain amount of time that he or she can lead the country, then they have to pass on the baton to the next person. It is up to India's population, India's voters to vote the right party, the right people in. Otherwise, we'll start going backwards. So it's all if ifs and buts. But if Tibet is liberated in the next 15-20 years, should we integrate it with India and Nepal? I think India should continue to have I think India should certainly in reintegrate Nepal with India uh, in the near to long term, near to medium term, maybe 20-30 years, because Nepal has always been part of India's civilization. Listen, my Nepalese friends, please don't hate me for saying this. Nepal and India are the same people, the same civilization, same culture, same everything. Right now, there is a communist party in power in Nepal. I know what they are teaching the students, so the students are getting brainwashed. So there is a significant anti-India sentiment in Nepal right now. We are different. We are the birthplace of Buddhism, Lord Buddha, all that. Come on, guys. We are the same people. So yeah, Nepal should be reintegrated with India when the time is right, maybe the next 20 years or so. If Tibet is liberated from China, India needs to have an open border with Tibet if the things, if the situation is right. So the way we have an open border with Nepal right now, had Tibet never come under Chinese control, I think India would have had a similar open border with Tibet. Because Tibet is an extremely friendly country. Tibetan culture, Indian culture are the same. Tibetan culture is a local manifestation of Indian culture. We have the same culture, the same civilization, the same beliefs, the same values, the same principles. We may be different ethnicities, but we have we are the same civilization. So, India and Tibet would have had an open border had Tibet been been free. If Tibet is liberated, once the Chinese influence goes away, once it is 
once Tibet is totally secure, we should have an open border with them. We should not try to re to integrate Tibet with India, because Tibet was never part of India. Tibet has always been a, a neighboring uh, region north of the Himalayas. The most we should do is reintegrate the region of the Kailash Mansarovar uh, region with India. That 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 certainly belongs in India. It is one of the of our holiest and most sacred places. But uh, Tibet, we should not try to integrate it within India. We can have an open border, no passport, no, no visas. That sort of policy, the kind of policy we have with Nepal right now. Uh, so yeah, so that's what should happen in the hypothetical case that Tibet is liberated in the next 15-20 years. All right. Abhishek asks, how do you define great leadership? That is a very profound question. There is no one sentence definition of great leadership. At its very core, leadership is service. Leadership is selfless service. Leadership is service without any expectation of personal gain. So that is leadership. But that is not great leadership. Great leadership is doing is 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 taking your constituency, your country forward in the right direction despite all the enormous problems that it inevitably faces. So that is a very big topic. It's not something you can define in a few minutes, in a few sentences. But just understand this much for now. Leadership is nothing but service. And it is service that is selfless, service that is without any expectation of personal benefit or gain. So that's what I can say right now. So we will conclude this session with this question about leadership. Thank you for your all your questions. Thank you for watching. Thank you for your participation. I will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow we have a live video chat session on Sunday. So I will see you all then. All right. Until then, take care. And thank you very much. I will see you tomorrow. Bye.